Have you ever felt frustrated at work? You witnessed something that you thought was wrong, but you didn't know who to turn to? This week, we've got an expert, both as a veterinarian and a lawyer, to discuss whistleblowing and what to do when you witness something you are uncomfortable with on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And one of the things that we hear repeatedly from our Viewfinder family is the sense of frustration, the sense of lack of control, and quite frankly, they don't know what to do when they witness something in their clinic that they're uncomfortable with. And so this week, we thought we would like to bring on an expert, both in legal matters and a fellow veterinarian, to sort of discuss the legal implications and steps you could take, as well as some of the ethics surrounding questionable practices. So we're going to talk about things like declawing and even what happens if you feel uncomfortable and unprepared during the time of the COVID pandemic. But before we get into that and introduce you to our special guest, as always, I'm Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. I'm excited today's guest um, was able to get to us today to have this conversation. He is one of my favorite people to listen to, uh, to have conversations with. Just a brilliant, hardworking guy in the veterinary industry who has so much information to share. Dr. Lance Rosa is a 2008 graduate of Texas A&M. He's owned uh, mixed practices in Colorado, uh, Phoenix, and now he has a group of practices in Nebraska where he performs surgery. But he's also an attorney. So because of this, he helps hundreds of veterinarians with their employment contracts and legality issues in the veterinary side every year. He also started DripVet, which helps veterinary students and veterinarians learn more about legal, business, medical topics. He speaks all across the country. He speaks at colleges. He is out there getting us all of the information that we need in the veterinary legal merger space in our world. Dr. Lance Rosa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for that kind introduction, Becky. Yeah, and I'll tell them when they when you are not being a veterinarian or a lawyer, you are a pilot. And Dr. Ernie, I don't even know if you know this, Dr. Lance comes down to Brunswick County, flies his plane, and hangs out on Oak Island with us. Did not know that. Yeah, one of my favorite places to be. So what kind of plane? Um, I fly a Cessna T210. T210. So that's still a single engine, right? That is a single engine, correct. Nice. Seats maybe six? That's correct. Yep. Yeah, my brother's got a Mooney, so just saying. So yeah. uh Get in a race one day. I used to fly Lance a long time ago. My wife and I did until one of our, we had a co-owned plane and uh, guy crashed it. So oh, that no. kind of put an end to a lot of our flying aspirations. But despite that, all lawyer jokes aside, Lance, whistleblowing in the veterinary profession is something that is very confusing. We'd first of all like to just start this discussion off today with what do we mean when we say whistleblowing in a veterinary practice context? Yeah, a whistleblower is, is basically defined as someone that that blows the whistle, uh, as it's as it said, um, and and raises their hand and says something illegal or something uh, wrong is going on in this uh, in this business or this organization. Uh, traditionally, um, whistleblowing is reserved for um, employers that are breaking the law, committing fraud, um, or some sort of public health or safety concern. Um, and traditionally as well, uh, whistleblowing is, is very strongly protected at the federal level um, for federal employees. 
Right. And certainly we've seen high profile cases of federal whistleblowers. I mean, that's been in the news this past year for sure. But let's get back to the more local. So when it doesn't involve public health, so it's not going to you know cause an, a pandemic in your town, right? If you don't let the world know that something horrible is going on in this lab. But what about when a, a veterinary support staff, whether they're a veterinarian or a veterinary technician or, or whomever, you know, they can be a receptionist, an assistant or whatever. What happens when they witness something that they feel is questionable or objectionable or somehow just doesn't feel right. Well, how does that play into quote unquote whistleblowing? Sure. I would look to two things um, when, when somebody comes to me and says, you know, I've got this thing going on and I want to confidentially talk to you about it. Uh, number one, I would look at what is the suspected activity? What's the behavior that's at fault? Um, and really try to dig in on that. Is it is it something that's just a a feeling that's wrong, or is it truly a law being broken? Um, is there something that's even more severe happening? Um, is there some sort of harassment, sexual harassment, or something like that? That rises to a much different level in the eyes of the law versus a a uh, um, as in Becky's uh, example earlier, um, a, a a a pet that's in pain for too long. So the I, the law sees those as two very separate events, and the uh, whistleblowing laws, um, thus treat them differently. And so maybe we should back up. Becky, share with Lance the story that sort of sparked this entire conversation. You and I have been anxious to discuss this based on this one example. Sure. When I asked Dr. Lance to join us for this episode, and, and Dr. Ernie, when I talked to you about it, as so many of the issues that we kind of pull from, they come from conversations that we see with our colleagues. And so um, on Facebook, I saw a conversation um, of venting a frustration from a colleague who is a technician who works in a practice where declaws are still being performed. Um, this particular cat had been declawed the day before. They kept it overnight. The next day, the technician felt that this patient was in pain and that the pain protocol that was in place was inappropriate and was not sufficient for managing pain in this patient. The associate veterinarian on staff that day, since the performing veterinarian was off, um, she went to that associate veterinarian who said they didn't feel comfortable overriding the pain protocol or the plan of the veterinarian who performed the surgery. And so this technician was in quite an emotional state having watched this animal be in pain all day long, feeling very uncomfortable with it and feeling incredibly helpless, like she couldn't change anything about it. So this story made me very sad because I know that this is one that a lot of our pair, you know, our professionals or support staff experience on a daily basis. And it made me want to know, like, how, what can they do? How can they work outside of what their constraints are? And it, it made me feel like this is like a call the veterinary medical board thing and say this veterinarian is not only doing this, but the pain, but then, you know, is that overkill? And how do you black, you know, not blacklist yourself in doing things like this. And it's really where I wanted to pull this situation apart and to talk about what our options are as veterinary professionals when this is happening. And Lance, just before we get into your answer here, let's be clear. This was performed in a state, in a location where declawing was legally permitted. Okay. So there wasn't a, they weren't breaking the law as far as doing the declaw at this time. But what is brought into question is, was there adequate pain management provided? And this is where I think it starts to to get quite murky. Absolutely. And so uh, given those facts, thanks for that, Becky. Um, I kind of back up to what I teach veterinary students. And so if I was talking to this veterinary technician, I would kind of give them the framework that veterinary veterinary students receive um, in veterinary school. 
Um, and so I look to what's called the moral, legal, ethical um, uh, decision-making matrix. I kind of think of it like a Venn diagram, uh, where some decisions have moral components to it, but they don't have any illegal, legal or ethical components to that decision. Some decisions are purely an ethical-based decision, no legal or, or, or moral components. However, many decisions do overlap into the, both the world of moral decision-making, legal decision-making, and ethical decision-making. So unfortunately, one of the first things to know where you are is what are the laws surrounding this? What is the ethics of the veterinary profession when it does come to you know, pain management in, uh, in feline patients in this example? Um, and so in, in my mind, if the, sta- if the, if the practice of of uh, uh, declawing is still legal in that particular state. Then secondly, we look to, you know, is there some sort of, uh, well, we'll back up a little bit. We have two things. We have the practice of declawing and then also the need for pain management. Um, And there we fall to this standard called the standard of care. And so I would argue that in most um, instances, um, providing proper pain management is the standard of care in today's veterinary practices. And so we still can have some legal decision-making um, to, to look at there. Secondly, if we look to the ethical components of it, um, and so a, a, across the board, uh, many veterinary organizations have stood up and said, hey, we need to really um, you know, uh, have per- issued guidance, basically. We really need to pay attention to this practice of eth- of, of, of uh declawing and then there's just you know very certain instances that it's okay there's instances that it's not okay and so as the technician and the doctors in that case I would set, certainly point them to that guidance and say did would did this procedure fall within one of these exceptions um, put forth by the AVMA or the American Association of Feline Practitioners um, and then thirdly we get to the moral components of it and so the moral components are kind of what your gut feeling is what what do you what is your individual, um, decision making between what is right and wrong, um, and so in from what I'm hearing in this case, a lot of this technicians, um, you know, uh, uh, objections to this fall between that moral and ethical um, uh, uh, conundrum, and that's where we really need to kind of dive in to examine. However, we still need to talk about the legal components of this as well. Yeah, and Lance, the way I was taught years and years ago, and maybe it's been updated, so please refresh me, but that the moral is the individual, the ethical is the organizational, and the legal is the societal, right? So, you know, if you kind of look at the hierarchy of, of those three things, and again, when you look at the Venn diagram, the intersection often is, well, your morals are just not intersecting with the legal and the ethical. You know, that's typically where I see these types of friction, right? So this is most likely, Becky, an individual who doesn't feel that the standard of care is being made based on their own personal beliefs and observations. But yet, if you took it to um, a quote-unquote objective party, you know, a, a board or whatever, they may say, well, they gave X, Y, and Z. They've met the standard of care. Therefore, ethically, we're fine. And then legally, you're fine because, you know, Lance, this is, you know, help clarify. Did I get that right? Or is there a way to somehow cut through that? The moral is typically the thing that's left outside of your Venn diagram of intersection. No, that's absolutely spot on. Um, and the and the tricky part of this is that standard of care is constantly moving and evolving. Um, and so let's look exactly at what that standard of care means. And that means in most states that it, it asks, what would an ordinary and prudent veterinarian or veterinary technician in this case 
do in a similar situation. And so those key two key words come up, ordinary and prudent. Right. I'm not asking, or the standard of care is not asking what a boarded surgeon would do, or the standard of care is not asking what would be done at the university setting. Right. They're right. looking at what an ordinary, sometimes said average veterinarian or veterinary technician would do in that case. And what does prudent mean? It just kind of means somewhat paying attention. And so if, if, if an ordinary veterinarian or veterinary technician is just somewhat paying attention, would they have given this patient pain medications? Yeah. And Lance, I, I'll, I'll even go a step further and be a little bolder. I'm not an attorney, but I've also heard it described working with many medical boards, as Becky has as well, uh, as the minimum that the average prudent informed uh, doctor or veterinarian would provide. Yeah, it's, it is absolutely the center of care is a, is a baseline level. Right, right. So, okay, this makes sense to me in all due respect from a legal standpoint. Like this looks really pretty on a piece of paper. Now, Dr. Lance helped me apply it, right? Because now I'm a veterinary technician in a practice that knows this isn't right. Like, I know this isn't right. I know this isn't the standard of care. Now what? What am I empowered with to do here where I have an associate vet who says, yes, I agree, this pet is in pain. However, I don't feel comfortable overriding the associate veterinary or the the prescribing veterinarian's plan. Um And we know what the culture, we know what the communication, we know how the majority of, I don't, I mean, I feel bad saying this. I don't want to be a negative Nelly, but we know that that's not going to go over well for most technicians, right? Like we're not going to be able to call our vet up on his day off and say, hey, your cat over here is in pain and your associate vet's not willing to override your crappy plan. What can we do? Like, that's not the reality. And we know that they're probably not going to call the medical board and say, hey, this is happening. Like, so in practice, like. What could that vet tech have done? Like realistically, what do they do? Yeah, great, great point, Becky. So here, here I am taking off my um, uh, attorney and professor hat and getting out of theory land, and I'm putting on my you know practice owner, practicing veterinarian hat. Um, you know, actually consulting with technicians in in my practices and you know practices you know all over the country. What do you do in real life? Um, well, the, the first thing that we do need to somewhat examine are what about these whistleblower laws? Is there going to be some protection there? What do they protect? How are they going to help and things along those lines? Um, and this is where I do have to play a bit of a, a negative Nelly, um, that the federal whistleblower laws are not going to apply at all. Right. Um, right. They typically apply to federal employees. Um, the, then we go to the state laws and there's just an absolute you know patchwork of, of quilt work of uh, whistleblowing laws at the state levels. Um, so it definitely depends on what state this happened in. Um, California versus Georgia is going to look very differently. Um, and many times the state whistleblower laws only apply to um, uh, to people that work for the state government or they right. work in some sort of publicly traded company. So here we have a, you know, a private veterinary practice in most cases. Um, and so many of those laws aren't going to apply. Well, what do they protect in the first place? Well, they protect you from being fired. Uh, from being terminated as a result of blowing the whistle on some sort of activity that's not right or is illegal. Um, and so that they don't typically protect against harassment and basically just making your life miserable um, after you do raise your hand um, and file a complaint with the state board or um, you know tell the proper to, proper authorities. So given that, you know the whistleblower laws are nothing really to rely on, unfortunately. Um, so then we look to what can we do, you know, basically, you know, in the practice or at the state board level 
you know, by itself more or less. And so as the owner of a group of practices, we have nine practices in our group. And so we have, you know, dozens of veterinarians and, and veterinary technicians, um, you know, hopefully, you know, we, we are working in an environment where we can raise our hand and say, hey, I don't feel right about this. I don't think this one patient got, um, you know, the pain management that it received or should have received. Or we have this structural problem where, you know, no um, declaws or painful procedures are receiving the pain management that they should receive. And hopefully the employer will listen. Now, I know in the real world that that doesn't happen and many employers don't listen. They turn their head the other way. And, and unfortunately, in the case that you've described, Becky, um, there probably are some big structural problems in that practice with the associate not being able to to weigh in on on pain management or weigh in on on a, a, another veterinarian's pain management protocols. Um, and so my my first step would be to address the structural problems within the practice itself. Um, unfortunately, I know that's not going to end well for uh, quite a few veterinary practice or veterinary technicians where they just don't feel empowered um, um, to, to, to help make those decisions. Um, and, and this is where, you know, kind of my crass, um, you know, cynical hat comes in. Um, there are plenty of good practices that do right. allow veterinary technicians to make those decisions. And I would advise this person to go look elsewhere. Now that's Absolutely. a, that's a very, um, uh, um, you know, draconian procedure, but that's where I'd go to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you know, you finders, you're familiar. We've had Dr. Margie Shirk on here uh, several times discussing this. We've asked this exact same question to her, a feline expert, and she says the same thing, Lance. It's just like, hey, I get it. There's very little you can probably do to change that practice culture as an employee. Wish you could and good luck, but don't continue to beat your head against the brick wall, proverbially, uh, because you're probably not going to change it. And there are plenty of practices out there that are probably more aligned with your personal morals, which is really getting right back to that Venn diagram of friction. And you really have to be in that right place that fits your moral compass. Now, Lance, I'd like to slightly pivot because I think this, this example, hopefully we've explained it well enough. And I think people know where we stand, but I want to now shift slightly into an area that might, in my opinion, have a little more protection and certainly more impact. I believe that Number one, that this co we're going to be stuck with COVID until we get a vaccine or get some kind of miracle treatment. Okay, so we're going to be dealing with this for months, if not longer. And so I think what's going to happen, especially as states begin to reopen and we sort of reclaim some semblance of normalcy, there are going to be a lot of veterinary clinics that don't do everything the way they should. Okay, and this is going to lead to a staff member being very concerned for their own personal safety, the safety of their family, the safety of their community. So Lance, I would say here, let's take it in this direction. What happens in four months from now, three months from now, whenever you work in a vet clinic and your boss is saying, forget all wearing these masks or six foot, all this stuff, that's a bunch of malarkey. We're not going to worry about any of that. And you're uncomfortable. I believe now we may have some very, because now public safety and health Lance, talk to me about possible whistleblowing protection and who should they contact if that occurs to them in the future. Great point. And this is not in theory. These are these are phone calls and emails that I'm receiving literally every day from both employers on how do we protect ourselves and how do we do the right thing in our practice and employees that that are describing that exact situation that you just described. My boss isn't taking the proper protections. My boss isn't protecting me uh, from, you know, from this now imminent, um, you know, uh, disease. And so um, where we look to there is actually OSHA law. 
Um, And so the Occupational Safe um, Health Act. And so when we're when we're when we're looking at you know what protections that we have there, the employer is required to provide a safe working environment for their employees. Now, this is obviously an ever-evolving situation. And a month ago, six weeks ago, um, in early in early to mid-March, um, OSHA hadn't released any guidance yet and hadn't said anything about what's going to happen. What, how do we define a safe workplace in the in the age of the COVID pandemic? Um, but more recently, OSHA has started releasing some guidance and saying, well, employers that don't protect their employees properly um, do or, or can uh, face re- repercussions because of they are not providing a safe workplace. Now, where this usually comes in are large employers. Think meat packing plants, think factories, um, you know, think uh, uh, healthcare providers, you know, on the human side. And so those employers do have to, and and we're seeing more and more examples of of them facing OSHA claims because they didn't provide all the proper PPE or the proper workspace, um, you know, uh, requirements for an employee. Um, and they and there's we're starting to see some OSHA claims. I haven't seen any in veterinary medicine yet, um, and and I don't know what that how that looks when dealing with the general public. Um, you know, basically every single day. Um, but I would I would strongly encourage employers and employees, you know, to look to that safe workplace um, uh, level. Yeah. And Lance, you've written about this. I've written about this. We do have clear precedent. Uh, 2003 SARS outbreak, for example. I mean, there were a lot of these cases that came forward after the fact, of course, and the courts were very clear. The work you have a responsibility as an employer to provide a safe workplace. And I'm telling you, you know, during times of pandemic and when public health and safety is at risk, Lance, those rules get really tightly enforced. They get tightly enforced and you're right. It's usually after the fact, but here we are in real time, um, you know, uh, trying to do that. So I would go back to what is, what are, what are, what's the ordinary and prudent veterinary practice doing? You know, what, what are everybody else, what's everybody else doing out there? Um, And this is where podcasts like this and social media and, you know, uh, organizations come in to say, hey, here's the guidance that we're giving. Um, and so, and, and unfortunately, we do have some employers that say, I don't believe that guidance, just like you described, Dr. Ward. I'm going to take this in a completely different direction. Those folks are outliers, um, and therefore, they're they're more likely to fall below the quote-unquote standard of care. Yeah, you know, I, I, I appreciate so much that you're having this this conversation, and I, I, I love that there are two levels here. Um, for one thing, it, I think it is so important, even if it's like on a weekly basis, we find all of these brilliant minds to come in and say, if you're not in a place that's taking care of you, go find somewhere right, that will, right? right? Like right. The, the, the fact that this is happening is not okay. It's not okay that it's happening to you. It's not okay that it's happening to the animals you care for, and you need to find somewhere that will. Right. And so I think the more that we can say that and give examples of that is important. The other thing is, is I love that we are empowering individuals with knowing that there is, you know, somewhere to go if they feel that things are not safe, if they're not, you know, patients aren't being treated to a standard of care um, and kind of helping empower around that um, and helping, I think also whether it's support staffs, you know, um, associate veterinarians, just kind of knowing that there are some places to go because they think this is really scary times. And, you know, with, with, especially with COVID, there's a lot, you're right. This is currently happening. I've actually heard of several veterinary technicians who have quit their jobs entirely because they don't feel safe and they, they, they can't, you know, 
move forward. So um, I think those are all salient and important points. And I just I, I know I'm just reiterating them and it's not to be redundant, but I want people to hear like if you're not safe and taken care of, you have to, you, you have to do that. That's up to you. Right. So again, Lance, I want to kind of get back to this example because I think you're going to hear a lot more about this uh, being in a workplace where you feel uncomfortable. The first and the first and most important thing is, of course, discuss it with your manager, your boss or whatever. And if you don't get the answers you want, Lance, I mean, honestly, I'm going to I'm going to be hardcore on this. Contact OSHA, right? I mean, they've got hotlines. You can do tips. I mean, I mean, I think OSHA is going to be the place to go and complain about workplace safety issues when it comes to COVID-19. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and I'm, I'm going to be, you know, hardcore about it as well. And in fact, I'm going to kind of lay it down into a, you know, one, two, three step wise progression. And, and I would certainly give the employer the chance to correct their behavior first and say, you know, in a very, um, you know, uh, uh, calm and, 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 in proper demeanor, I don't feel comfortable. And these are my safety concerns. My safety concerns are we're not wearing masks, we're not social distancing, whatever that may be, um, or you're forcing me to be too close to patients or clients that have had previous respiratory disease. All of these things, lay them out in great detail, document those details. And so, you know, here's a, you know, we're going to have this conversation orally, but here's an email that also summarizes what we talked about. And that documentation could become very important for you later on. Secondly, just like you said, Dr. Ward, if you do not get the, um, you know, the, the response that you need, as in your safety is still in jeopardy, um, I would actually take a first step or a, a first stop and I would, I would look to the state's Department of Labor or um, the, the Workforce Commission, however the state calls it, um, and, and give them a call. Yes, they're very busy right now. Um, but give them a call and say, hey, these are the things that I'm seeing. There may be some state protection and state OSHA type laws in place. And then thirdly, um, uh, before, you know, um, you know, before uh, contacting OSHA, I would take a deep breath. Um, but that is the place to make complaints where, um, where true workplace safety is in jeopardy. So that's a really important point to, to reemphasize. That is, yeah, take a deep breath. Make sure this is a legitimate complaint because when you start making these phone calls or dropping these emails, there are consequences. Like when you report to these agencies, they are legally required to follow up. So you can't just go, oh, sorry, I, I, I butt dialed you, <laughs> right? I mean, that may or may not fly. You may actually have to fill out reports or become, be you know, certainly interviewed, investigated. So Lance, I mean, there is a little, bit of caution, like, you know, before you make, make, make that official step, make sure you're willing to to go where it's going to take you. Yeah. Unfortunately, at that point, in many cases, it, it costs people their jobs. Yeah. Um, and, right. And, and before you make that phone call, you've got to make that decision that, you know, my safety is more important than this job or the safety of my my coworkers. Lance, we've talked a lot about, you know, the declaw and the pain management, but what about, again, getting back to that example that I referred to about, you know, just aggressive handling, you know, I mean, aren't there different reporting requirements for staff if they see potential abuse? Yeah, there's a second second body of law that we can look at as well, and that is reporting requirements for animal abuse. And so if there truly is animal abuse happening in the hospital, credentialed veterinary technicians in certain states are required to report that abuse. California comes to mind, for example. Um, and so if abuse is happening, whether it be rough handling or even I've, I've heard and, and, and been a part of legal cases where there actually is you know, physical beating happening in practices, right. 
that should be recorded to the reported to the state veterinary board. California mandates that. Other states for technicians allow voluntarily voluntary reporting, meaning that if the veter if the veterinary technician reports um, to the state board, then they they are immune from uh, liability, as in lawsuits and things along those lines. Um, and so you do have that requirement as a credential technician to, in some states, actually make that re- that report. And of course, this definitely applies to licensed veterinarians. And Becky, we've had these cases in our state that are high profile. And the unsung superheroes of fighting animal abuse are the veterinary technicians in those clinics that were brave enough, courageous enough to come forward. They lost their jobs. Quite frankly, they were slandered in the media for some period of time, uh, but yet they did the right thing to save the lives and well-being of pets. So that's a great, great point, Lance. Let's go back to that first example, the person who felt uncomfortable with the declaw, the associate veterinarian says, I'm not willing to override the other veterinarian or whatever. Uh, We all uh, will agree that you need to probably find a workplace that aligns better with your morals. But let's say it's just these everyday little things that you just don't feel comfortable with. Maybe you feel that they restrain cats too aggressively, right? Or maybe that they aren't taking steps to um, alert people about preventive care. I mean, something that just, you know, gnaws on you. You can't complain to some government agency, but give us a little bit of that real advice for that person who's listening today and struggling with that. What can they do personally to cope and maybe how can they find some peace? Gotcha. So the thing that I would back up to do is I would, I would definitely pull all the resources that I could. And so I would go and look at that AAFP guidance. I would go look at the AVMA guidance. I would look at what, you know, what other veterinarians are saying on social media or VIN or something along those lines and try to pull what the, um, you know, what kind of the general consensus is out there. If there are papers, if there are scientific articles, if there are, um, you know, things on point that you can point at, I would print them out as in physically waste a tree. Um, print them out and, and start putting them on the desk or saying, hey, here's some resources that I found for you um, that we, um, you know, that we could change our pain management protocols. I would take it that next step and say, hey, look, I'm going to go ahead and create a calculator or a uh, pain management protocol. I want you to approve it. I, obviously, you have to approve it, but I've done that extra work to make sure that our patients are taken care of. And so basically take those things into your own hands, do the hard work, and then put it in front of them and let them either approve or deny it. If they do deny it, then that note that lets you know that it's not just they're too busy or or you know too lazy. They actually have an, an opposition to you know in this case pain management. Um, and you've done the hard work for them. All they have to do is put the rubber stamp on it. You know exactly where they sit at this point. Um, and then the second thing is is I really love the 360 reviews. And obviously, it's hard for an employee to put those into into play. Um, but it, what the 360 review does is it allows, you know, it, this is not just my feelings. This is not one technician's feelings about pain management in the practice. Now we have four, five, six, ten other people, technicians, credential technicians that also feel the same way. And it kind of puts that democratic vote or that 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 sense of democracy in the practice where we've got we, 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 the the one veterinarian is likely outweighed at that point. Right. Um, and they should make a business decision just as much as they're making a, right. a pain management or an ethical decision. Um, and then thirdly, before, you know, if I put those two things in place, then I would look to, you know, another job because they're clearly not listening to you on this yeah. point. Yeah, That's such great advice. And again, I think it's so important for our 
members of our profession to feel empowered uh, to know that things are changing, standards are changing, care is changing. And if it doesn't feel right, you know, you've got some choices. You have some things you can do to protect yourself, protect your patients. And, you know, Dr. Lance, I love the idea, too, that you say, you know, give your employer a chance to correct the changes first, but also to be empowered. I think we could probably ask you a thousand questions today. Um, I know your time is incredibly valuable. So I want to thank you again so much for being here and just helping work through this uh, topic that's actually really been bothering me and stands out a lot to me. So um, once again, Dr. Lance, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And I'll leave you with one point. And it's the same thing I leave veterinary students with as well. And that is trust your gut. Your gut is usually correct. And so if you have this strange you know, feeling that this something's not right, it probably is not. That's right. Well, we feel right about you, Dr. Lance Rosa, veterinarian and lawyer, but we won't hold that against you right now. If you want to find out more, go to Rosa Law, R-O-A-S-A-Law.com. You can find out more about Lance and his adventures in his airplane and doing all the cool stuff that he does. Lance, thanks again for joining our Viewfinder family and helping us tackle another tough topic. Until next time, Viewfinder family, stay safe. Give your pets a hug for me. Bye. Bye. Okay. Thank you very much. That'll work. That's all. That was a good bye. That was a good bye. <laughs>